wondered what it's like to face the complex world of disability insurance claims as a physician? Meet Edward Dabdaub, the founding attorney at Dabdaub Law Firm. Eddie began his legal career working as a law clerk during law school at a disability insurance firm, and he would go on to build his own law firm for the sole purpose of handling disability insurance claims. He spent his entire legal career helping people get paid disability insurance benefits. Today, his firm represents all types of physicians across the country. Eddie specializes in physician disability insurance claims, appeals, and litigation. Eddie has represented many physicians and gained a deep understanding of the occupational duties of various medical specialties, and he's applied that knowledge to successfully obtain disability insurance benefits on behalf of physicians. He recently won a case on behalf of a liver transplant surgeon who had own occupation disability insurance. After suffering a fall, the doctor could no longer perform liver transplant, but continued to perform other types of surgeries. His insurance company denied his total disability claim on the grounds that he had more than one occupation, because prior to his disability, he performed other types of surgeries when not doing liver transplants. Eddie successfully argued before the federal court that his occupation was that of a liver transplant surgeon. Once he became unable to perform liver transplant, he was totally disabled from his own occupation despite continuing to do other surgeries. With experience litigating in both federal and state courts, Edward Dabdaub is a true hero for those seeking the disability insurance benefits they deserve. So if you or someone you know is navigating the challenging world of disability insurance, don't miss the opportunity to connect with Edward Dabdaub and his dedicated team at Dabdaub Law Firm. They've got your back. Stay tuned for another fascinating episode of the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. And remember, when life throws its toughest challenges your way, Edward Dabdaub and his firm are here to fight for your rights. Visit longtermdisability.net to learn more. What is homeopathy? What are the ideas behind it? What are the origins of it? And is there even anything in it? Hey, this is Brad Block, host of The Physician's Guide to Doctoring. This is a personal and professional development podcast for physicians where we have experts on the show that try to teach us everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. Dr. Ken Milne, thanks so much for coming back to the podcast. Oh, I was looking forward to spending some more quality time with you. I appreciate that so much. So for those who don't know, definitely check out the last episode because we, we did uh, a couple of weeks or maybe even a couple of months ago at this point, we talked about really his podcast that y'all should check out, The Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. It's the SGEM because if you just go to sgem.com, that's the Society of Gemology. So the SGEM. Dr. Milne is also is a staff physician at Strathroy Middlesex General Hospital in Strathroy, Ontario. Had a little trouble on articulating all of that. He teaches evidence-based medicine, clinical epidemiology, critical appraisal, and biostatistics at Western University in London, Ontario, and he speaks internationally about these topics. So again, thank you, Dr. Milne, for coming back. The, the short introduction could have been nerd. <laughs> well, they'll glean that from the rest of the show. So today we're, <laughs> we're going to talk about homeopathy. And you had sent me some funny videos that will, uh, or a funny video rather, that we're going to include in the show notes about homeopathy, about someone who was, I think it was a trauma patient who was brought to the emergency department. The physician was going through all the homeopathic remedies that they were going to be trying and tinctures in order to help save this person's life. And you and I are 
as the show is being recorded, we're drinking our homeopathic alcoholic beverages. So what is it? What is it you're drinking right now? I've got a homeopathic lager. It's a full-bodied lager with uh, one drop of active ingredient. And so the theory of homeopathy is that if one drop is going to make you drunk, I'm sorry, if a whole bottle is going to make you drunk, then one drop diluted in water, whoa, a whole lot more potent. Yeah, that's one of the underlying laws of homeopathy about uh, the more dilute the solution, the more powerful the treatment. So where does this all where does this all come from? What is homeopathy? Oh, this gets my opportunity to do some time travel. You know, homeopathy was invented by Samuel Christian Hahnemann, and he was a German physician. And he, w- he was traditionally trained as a German physician for his time, but, you know, he became very disgruntled with the traditional training of bloodletting, leeching, using suction cups, purges, arsenic powers, all the things that were happening during his era, you know, the standard of care, it just seemed to be harming more patients than it was helping. And so he rejected his traditional physician training and he started prescribing things like fresh air, personal hygiene, regular bathing, exercise and a healthy diet. So far, he seems like a really smart physician, you know, talking about things like the social determinants of health and doing some of the basic things well, like washing yourself, eating exercising, all of these things were really well, really good. But then he made this observation, which became the first law of homeopathy, that likes could cure likes. And what he did was he observed that if you took the bark of a chacona and it contained some quinine, and that's a drug used to treat malaria. And when he took that, he found that he developed some of the symptoms of the malaria. And so it was like this aha moment that You know, he could use a drug and its active ingredients of a drug to create the symptoms. Well, then maybe he could use that to cure disease, which causes the same symptoms. And so homeopathy itself, it comes from the Greek homeo, which means like, and pathos, which means suffering. So that's where you get like and suffering. If you take something and it causes you know, the same symptoms that an illness will cause, well, then maybe you could treat the illness by treating it with the same substance that could cause the symptoms of the illness. That was his aha moment. So the aha moment was that he chewed on this bark that made him feel unwell, but it actually, that same dose is the poison. So if you use the correct dose, it could also treat malaria. So he took that and extrapolated that to basically everything, all human illness could be treated the same way. And to give him some credit, I mean, listen, we're talking about a time period back in the late 17th century, early 18th century. You know, the germ theory of infectious disease really hadn't taken hold until the end of the 19th century. This is before antibiotics were first produced and discovered. You know, nobody was using general anesthetics. People were bloodletting right? So his contemporaries were bloodletting. They were releasing one of the evil humors to try to cure all disease and illness. 
And there, there was a German physician named Franz Mesmer who was using magnets in the 1780s saying that this could cure all disease and illness. So I don't think he was much of an outlier for his time. He just said, listen, I found this and I'm going to apply it to everything. But there was many other things happening at the same time. Okay, so the fault doesn't really lie with him. It lies with people that are still believing this and not only believing it, but spreading this. People that are trained in allopathic and osteopathic medicine in the United States and Canada and around the world are then like somehow believing this contradictory information, right? That like, despite all of what you're taught coming up in our training, right? Chemistry, physics, bio, anatomy, physiology, they're espousing this principle that seems to contradict all that. Basic principles of chemistry. So actually, we haven't even gotten to that. So far, like cures like, so that you've got something that gives you similar symptoms as the disease. And if you apply that to the body, then it helps the body to heal itself. Exactly. And then one of the other laws and tenets of homeopathy is that the law of infinitesimal dosages. And Hahnemann opined that when drugs were diluted either in water or alcohol, they actually increased their therapeutic potency as opposed to decreasing it. So it wasn't a dose response curve like you and I would think if you give someone a little bit of morphine, they have a little bit of effect, a little bit of pain control. You give them more morphine, they get more pain control, more pain effect. And if you get a lot of morphine, you know, you get, all, you get the person unconscious, right? He had the inverse of that. So the more dilute the solution, the more powerful the actual medication. And they were done in a one in a hundred dosages. So one versus a hundred. So one of active ingredient versus a hundred and so that's a C, so the letter C for 100. And so a C1 dose is diluting it 1 to 100. But they would repeat this multiple times over and over and over again with serial dilutions. And each time you diluted it, you would do something called a succussion splashing, where you would shake the solution very vigorously or hit it with a hand donned with a leather glove. So that was called succussion splashing. And then you will go through this serial dilutions to make it more potent by making it more dilute. You know, I, I happened to look at some homeopathic labels before this interview, and I saw some things that were 12C. And so if 1C is, is diluted 1 to 100, 12C is, is like that to the, what is that, to the 12th power? Yeah. So you can see C to the 200 preparations, and that means you would have one part of active ingredient but it would be 10 to the 2000. So if you have a C12, it is 10 to the 120 because it's not 10 based, it's 100 based. That's what the C represents. And so if you have a C200 preparation, that is a 10 to the exponential of 2000. So it would be one part active ingredient to 10 to the 2000 water molecules. And just to put that in perspective, because you know it's hard to get our head around large numbers. A C200 preparation, there's only 10 to the 80 total atoms in the observable universe. <laughs> okay. How's that for good? That's powerful stuff. <laughs> that is powerful stuff. <laughs> and just a reminder, that's how dilute it is. So there is, I mean, that is def again, this defying laws of physics and chemistry that they're saying that there's actually anything left. I don't even understand how it's legal to sell this stuff. 
It is legal, and, and it's legal in many countries, Australia, it's, UK, it's Canada. It's intentional deception. The, the people that, obs- that, that create the laws that allow this to happen, if they're, that's a, the assu- assuming that they've taken the time to be educated on what it actually means, which is not a safe assumption, they're allowing people to be intentionally duped. It is completely unethical. I'm preaching to the choir. I, yeah, I would agree that if you understand physics and chemistry and biology and those types of things that we've been talking about, if you actually understand that and um, you understand how dilute these solutions are, just from that standpoint alone, it would be unethical to knowingly sell this product as something that could be effective beyond a placebo effect. Because we do know that you know the placebo effect is real and you can sh- demonstrate this over and over again if you give someone a sugar pill, which homeopathy, it's usually diluted, diluted, diluted with a little piece of an active ingredient, diluted, 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 and then one drop is placed on a sugar tablet as the medium and you take that sugar tablet. Well, we know if we just skip all the homeopathy part and just give someone a sugar tablet and say, here's something for your headache there will be a placebo effect in a certain number of people and that placebo effect is real and it can be a large significant effect 20 30% pain relief with a placebo and actually we do have an episode on the placebo and the nocebo effect so if y'all are interested in that we talk about the dicey ethical situation of actually recommending a placebo but as dr milne is saying there is a definite measurable respect especially with something like pain where the placebo can be utilized to our advantage. So if you're interested in exploring that, it's a good episode. But it seems like there's some intentional trickery here. But we're okay. We're not gonna we're not gonna go down go down that road. This is just supposed to be educational here. So there's something else that's often in these homeopathic remedies, and I think both of us are gonna have significant difficulty pronouncing it. It's acilicosinum, acilicosinum, I think. That's a patented homeopathic product manufactured by the Borion, B-O-I-R-O-N, laboratories. And it's made from the heart and liver of wild duck. And it's specifically targeted to treat cold and flu symptoms. And so they take up heart and liver products from a duck. I don't know if it has to be a wild. I guess a tame duck wouldn't work, but it's from a duck. And then they do that thing where they dilute it down serially to sometimes to a C200 preparation and then drop it on a, a tablet of a sugar pill and, and then you're supposed to take this as a treatment for cold and flus. Interesting. So ground up duck innards. I would imagine given how diluted it is, it's probably just one duck that's sacrificed its innards that all of homeopathy is just using the same duck since it's so dilute. Everyone gets a single molecule. Getting into this, you know, you might think, well, chicken soup, right? But at least there, there's the, the fluid, the volume of fluid, the salt, the protein. And, you know, usually it's made by somebody who loves you, who wants you to get better from your cold or flu symptom. But this is totally different. But, there, you know, people have researched this and there, there's a Cochrane review. So Cochrane is a very reputable organization that does reviews, and they've historically been very, very high methodological quality reviews. And in 2015, they concluded that there's insufficient good evidence to enable robust conclusions 
to be made about this product in the prevention or treatment of influenza or influenza-like illness. Why can't they say something like, it doesn't work, right? Why can't they just make a statement like that? Scientists don't tend to do that, and we start with a null hypothesis usually. Usually you're trying to prove something is superior, so in this case you'd be trying to prove that this homeopathic medicine is superior, so the conclusion would be, the honest conclusion would be, we don't have enough evidence to accept the claim that this medicine, this homeopathic product, works for what it's advertised to work for, what, it's, what they're claiming it works for, influenza or flu-like illnesses. And so we just accept the null hypothesis. And proving a null in science or proving a negative, it's not impossible, but it's much more difficult. They just take that and run with it and say, well, they didn't prove that it didn't work. There just isn't enough evidence yet to prove the study hasn't been designed yet. They, the pharma, big farm, whatever, is just never going to fund a study that proves that it works. And so that's the pushback that we often get. What is your response to that? It's the end of another busy day. You just saw 20, 30 patients, maybe more. Instead of heading home for dinner with your spouse or playing with your kids, you now begin your night job, charting. Charting is critical for patient care, billing, and medical legal liability, but it steals our focus from our patients, eats away at our time with our families, and keeps us up at night. The burden of always having another chart to complete drains all of us. Freed listens, prepares your notes, and writes patient instructions for you. Charting is done before your patient walks out of the room. Wait, because it gets better. Freed learns your style over time. It's AI, just like a human scribe would, except it will never quit on you. Freed is loved by 3,000 plus clinicians from every specialty. It's HIPAA compliant, takes 30 seconds to learn, and costs only $99 a month. You can try Freed for free right now by going to freed.ai, F-R-E-E-D.ai. Listeners of the Physician's Guide to Doctoring can use the code PGD50 for $50 off the first month. Well, the thing is, I mean, a frequentist approach would say, yeah, we can't reject the null hypothesis and look at the statistics and stuff like that. And a Bayesian who would say, well, what's the pretest probability that you can potentially dilute something to one in 200 or, well, it's a 10 to the 2000 solution, which is more atoms than it exists in the observable universe. And that little drop of water that you place on that sugar tablet is going to have any effect beyond a placebo effect. It, it's just unrealistic to actually think that could be possible to happen. But I do know that people who promote homeopathy will say, well, water has memory. You know, there's this idea of similarities that the water itself, when exposed to the active ingredient, maintain some kind of memory of that active ingredient where there's no evidence for that. So, you know, claims without evidence can be dismissed without evidence. That's Christopher Hitchens. That's Hitchens razor. But on top of that, you know, if you think, well, we exposed it to some, some duck liver and some duck heart guts stuff, and it remembers that. What about all the other 
things that water came into contact with. Why doesn't it remember any of that? You know, like, I mean, and I could get into the toilet humor, but, you know, like, why doesn't it remember anything else it was exposed to? Why does it only remember the duck liver? I love that argument. I love that. That's amazing. I have thought about this. Seems a little selective. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's got selective memory. There's another argument that homeopathy is so highly tailored to the individual that it can't be studied. It's impossible to be studied. You know, I come from a philosophy of science that agrees a lot with Karl Popper. And Popper's philosophy was, if it's not falsifiable, it's not science. It's outside of science. It's You're considered supernatural or outside the natural world. You know, an, an unfalsifiable claim isn't something that science can address. And I want to believe as many true things as possible and as few false things as possible. And I learned that from another individual. And it really, that's, I think, special pleading saying, well, it, you know, it's beyond your science and beyond that. Great. But then why does anybody else have to accept that? Right? Like, why would anybody accept that? And would they accept that with any other claim? And again, you can go back to Hanneman and it was 200 years ago. And so I'm not harsh on him. I'm not critical of him. I don't want somebody judging what I'm doing and Perhaps you don't want somebody judging what you're doing as a physician 200 years from now. I'm doing the best I can with the information I have at the time to give the best patient care possible. But the thing that didn't change about homeopathy is it didn't evolve. It didn't progress. It just stayed stuck in that model as opposed to what I hope we're doing is, you know, if something gets published tomorrow that says what I'm doing as an emergency physician isn't correct or they've got high quality evidence that's very convincing that demonstrates that, great, super. That's how science works. It's iterative. It moves forward. It may take a, a step back every once in a while, but it's continuing to move us closer and closer to the quote unquote truth. And so I don't want to be too judgy retrospectively 200 years when I know 200 years from now, people might be going, I can't believe Dr. Milne was doing that. But he's got a heap of literature to back it up. You just test it. If people want to make a claim that a certain product works, um, then demonstrate it. And if, and if you don't want to demonstrate it or you say it can't be demonstrated, then I certainly, and I don't think other people, but I don't certainly have to accept that it does work. And the burden of proof is on those making the claim. What about, there's, so there's some overlap with vaccines, right? The whole like cures like. And so they can kind of jump on that train and say that, well, that's what you're doing with the vaccines. And in fact, they do that. With with no sods, which is something I recently learned about. What what are what in the world are no sods? They're sort of a stand-in, or their people are advocating that it, it's in replacement or instead of a vaccine. Of course, that shouldn't happen. And you know, I I know from a Health Canada standpoint, no doses are uh, a type of homeopathic product that has never been approved by Health Canada to be a vaccine alternative. And they certainly don't recommend its use in children and advises, you know, Health Canada advises children to get all their routine vaccinations after discussing it with their physician. But it does, it, what it does is it tries to retrofit the idea of like cures like, ah, see, we didn't understand germ theory of disease. Now we understand the immune system better. So that's what a vaccine does. It's not really what a vaccine does. A vaccine exposes the body, you know, traditionally to an antigen of some kind, and then your body's immune system develops an antibody, and then your own body's antibodies 
deal with the illness and protect you from getting sick from that illness. That's not what they're talking about here. They're talking about this substance will cure the illness, not some kind of intermediate process. We don't have an intermediate process where we measure antibodies to the no-dosum that's been given. That product that's been given, they can give it to somebody and then test to see if there's any antibodies towards that active ingredient and there isn't an immune response. So it's not working in the, in the known immunologic methods. Got it. So what exactly is a no-sode? I mean, my understanding that, that it's like they take something like a secretion from, so I guess it's similar to the osiliconum. Instead of using duck guts, they're using like actual like infected tissue and giving you a homeopathic tincture of that. Correct? Yeah. But remember, they're trying to slip that in, but that serial dilutions, how can there be any active ingredient left after doing so many succussion splashes? So you've diluted it out of existence, basically. And so there's no evidence that it works. And at the end of the day, what you need to demonstrate is if this product is given, all the stuff in between what's happening, you know, they'll say, you know, water has memory in sometimes or this or that. At the end of the day, does it work? And the answer is it's never been demonstrated to work with high quality evidence. Any, well, yeah. And with high quality evidence, I'm sure there are papers somewhere that you can find that can tell you anything that you're looking for. It's, uh, but it's not peer reviewed, not reproducible and not high quality. We really want to make sure that people, I think that people need to understand what they're taking and what it is that they're taking. And a lot of the times I don't think people actually do understand what they're taking. And when most people that I've spoken to before interpret, somebody said, oh, I'm taking a homeopathic treatment. They often think, oh, I'm taking a natural product right? A natural product. And then when you explain to them what exactly that means with regards to cereal dilutions and light cures like and water has memory, they're often very surprised and didn't realize that that's ex exactly what they're talking about. And there's been surveys of people saying, you know, how many people take homeopathy and the numbers are always like, ooh, that seems like a lot. And then you actually interview those people and say, do you really understand what this means? What homeopathic therapy means. And it's usually, no, they don't really understand what it means. And this is now me on my soapbox. This is the government's role is to protect you from things like this, from being tricked in such a way. And it's my view that they're really failing us in that regard, but not a political podcast. So one, any, any final words for the audience on anything else that you'd like them to know about homeopathy? Well, I guess, you know, when it comes to homeopathy, I guess the more educated and informed you are, the more people are less likely to use a product that they understand what exactly they're talking about and the evidence that doesn't exist to support it to be an effective treatment. And I'll, I, I'm very concerned that people will take these products in lieu of doing, seeking out medical care, right? So if somebody has influenza that they'll take this homeopathic product rather than seeing their healthcare provider and getting an appropriate diagnosis, reasonable therapy that has been demonstrated to be helpful as opposed to seeking out this type of care. When you have patients come into your emergency department and they've got 
really any complaint. They come in with their bag of medications that they've been on already, and they take out some homeopathic remedies. Do you educate those patients as to what or ask them about what homeopathy is? Or do you just kind of say, okay, well, this didn't work for you. Let's find something that does. I use it as a teachable moment. And I also find that if I'm a safe space for patients to explore these issues with me, then I can be a resource to them. And I don't do it with judgment. They're taking it because they think it'll work. They're taking it and they're not stupid. They're not naive. They're not and it, you know, like, I don't want to be judgy about it. They have this perception that this medication, this supposed medication could be helpful. And so it opens the door to have a conversation with them about it. And yeah, so I don't come down very hard on people. I just say, well, what do you know about this? And are you aware of how this dilutions work? And if they bring up the idea of no doses and, you know, that that's just like a vaccine. Well, you can say, well, it's sort of similar, but not quite. And it hasn't been demonstrated to work where we have high quality evidence that vaccines, by and large, on a population level, for most people, the potential benefits vastly outweigh the potential harms. So, you know, you can have that conversation with them without making them feel small or not intelligent, all those types of things, because I know it's really easy to be dismissive and I never want to make, I never want to feel like that. I mean, I think I'm a fairly intelligent person, but when I go to get my computer fixed, I don't want to be made to feel like an idiot. I'm not an idiot, but I just don't understand how this works. And if somebody takes the time to explain it to me in a kind way, I'm way more likely to bring my computer back to that individual who helped me and didn't make me feel small and stupid. And I remember how that made me feel. And so I never want to make someone else feel that way. And I want them to feel comfortable to come back with their next concern or question. And then I can hopefully help them with that. And I wish my wife feel this, felt the same way about showing me how to use Instagram. But uh, she keeps calling me boomer. Yeah, well, my, my standard response for anything technology related is find the youngest person in the room and hand them your phone. True. Thanks. <laughs> All right. Well, Dr. Ken Milne, where can people find you and where can they find the S-GEM online? So the S-GEM is www.thesgem.com. Excellent. Excellent. Well, once again, thank you so much for your time. Very educational and entertaining. And, and if you ever want to get together and talk about other things, other therapies in this field, of homeopathy, because uh, there is a lot of things people are seeking out for healthcare. I'd be happy to get back together with you and talk. And remember to be skeptical of me, look into this yourself. I may have misspoken during the podcast. Take a look, look it up, check it out and see what you think and make your own decision. And let us know what you find out. Before we go, be sure to check out the incredible work of Edward Dabdab and Dabdab Law Firm. For more information and expert guidance on disability insurance claims, visit their website, longtermdisability.net. Thanks for listening. I have a favor to ask. You listened to the episode until the end, which means you either fell asleep or you really liked the episode. So please share it or like it or comment on a social media post or write us a five-star review, something. It would really help me out. 
and maybe what you learned from this episode can help someone else too. The views expressed in this episode are those of the interviewer and interviewee and don't represent the views of their employer or even their significant other. Even though the magic of podcasting make it sound like I'm talking directly to you, this is not a doctor-patient relationship and this is not medical advice or financial advice or really any advice. Thank us again for listening to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.